Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1 to 4, and chapter 6, verse 12 to 15. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who laid out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king of Hebron and King David made covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. 2 Samuel 6, 12 to 15. And he was, king da- he was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom, and all that belongs to him because of the ark of, of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had, had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and fattened animal And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. And this is the word of God. As we pray, our Father, thank you very much for this account in the life of David and its instruction for us. Father, we pray your blessing as we discuss and learn from you. May your spirit be the one that is our instructor today. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Please be seated. It's a joy to hear the scriptures read by my good friend Shadrach from Burundi to look out next to him and see a new great friend, my friend Dr. Charles and some of yours as well, from Rwanda. So, I know some of you came a mile or two. That's not very impressive, but we're still glad you're here. For those of you that have come across an ocean, we are very grateful that you came. If the life of David were written by an event planner, my sermon would be rather different today. An event planner enjoys the details, the planning of a great event. And today is a great event in the life of David. It is his coronation. It is the time in which he has been waiting since Samuel poured oil and anointed his head some years before. But as as we look at this, we're, we're missing what may have happened but is not at all emphasized, the fanfare of invited guests from distant places. We're missing the fanfare of royal robes and special garments. We're missing the recognition of perhaps that first set of leaders who are appointed. We're missing the party and all the details. 
In fact, all we find here in 1 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 3 is this, all the elders came to the king and they anointed David king over Israel. And so what are we left to do without all the details that a wedding planner of the day would have pushed into the text? Well, I think we're left to do something that is very valuable. That is to ask, how did David get to that place? And what did he do in those first weeks and months that are there for our instruction? And that's what chapter 5 and chapter 6 is about. The journey that got him there and what happened in the early months that would again set the tone for how he would reign in the years ahead. The chapter begins and there's success all around. It says in chapter 1, Shadrach just read it to us, then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. Now, it has been some time in coming, some estimate maybe 15 years, since Samuel first approached David, had to pull him out of the field, and as David looked on, his seven rather grumpy brothers looked down their noses, and he was anointed the next king over Israel. Now, if it was you and me, Especially since most of us are Americans, we like things kind of tight, the script kind of lean, kind of want to get out on time. It might be a three-act play. Come on. You know, first scene, Samuel anoints David. Second scene, Goliath falls dead. Third scene, Saul has an early heart attack, and David gets to the throne in six months. But that's not what God chose to do. God, way back here, has, has Saul anoint David, and then we set what unfolds for David is a serious time of waiting as, as this tortuous path, this tortuous providential path unfolds. A path of being invited into King Saul's palace and playing for him when you're not dodging spears when he's trying to kill you. Times in the wilderness, not just months, but, but really years that he was trying to escape, trying to preserve his life as Saul and armies, sometimes even thousands of Saul's men, were seeking him out, hiding in caves. I bet you David, when that oil was dripping down his head, didn't imagine he'd be at the gate of a foreign city trying to be a madman so they'd leave him alone and let him live for a little while. We covered that territory. And I don't think we would have even guessed when King Saul died that it'd still be another seven years before he becomes king over all of Israel. That's a lot of waiting. A lot of waiting. But I think we see in David someone that we can not just admire for his activity and accomplishments, but the activity he showed in his waiting. Now, first of all, David had a very different perspective on how he got there than, well, the king, the, the rulers that came from the north, these, these leaders from the northern tribes came. Listen to the, the, what they describe as the reason David should become king. And... 
If you were marshalling your arguments and coming before the king, you would indeed put that which is most important, most obvious first, and work your way down the list. If you didn't get to the things that are lower in the list, that was fine because you, you marched out verbally with what was most important. And so when they come, Israel leaders come to say, David, it's time for you to be on the throne. They begin in verse 1 by saying, you're one of us. You are bone, our bone and flesh. You're one of us. And if that's not enough, you've always been our leader. Look at chapter 5, verse 2. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought us in in Israel. And almost like a, oh yeah, the Lord said you should be shepherd of my people Israel and you shall be prince over Israel. Even in their arguments, they demonstrate a very different perspective of why David is to ascend on the throne. You're one of us. You've always been a leader. And God kind of said this would happen. (laughs) David, for 15 years, began with God said it would happen. David could look back and remind himself in 1 Samuel 16 when he was anointed. There's never any question. He didn't know if he was going to live till tomorrow at times, but, but he never seemed to waver in questioning he would become king because God had said so through Samuel. And, and he could look back in 1 Samuel chapter 23 when, when Jonathan, his good friend, had sought him out and come down and spoken to him these clear words, you're to be the next king of Israel. Jonathan wasn't a prophet. Jonathan was repeating what God had said through the prophet, Samuel, some years before. And David waited, and it seems, without wavering. I'm not saying without ever questioning, God, what are you doing? How long? His psalms, his writings reflect that. But not wavering in his confidence in what God was going to do. In fact, I would say, as I've given thought to this over the last few weeks, I made a discovery that I... To my, to, to my embarrassment, had not made before. Because when I, you, if you would have asked me just a few weeks ago, what are David's greatest accomplishments, I could have come up with a list, and you would have said, that sounds good. I don't know if on that list, at least very high on the list, I would have put of his greatest accomplishments was waiting on the Lord. And as I look out over at this group And I think of God's people gathered. They've already gathered today, and some will continue to gather the rest of this Lord's Day. If we were to think about the great things that God has enabled us to do through his strength and and begun to list and celebrate the things God has done among us and through us, we might fail to name one of the greatest things that God has done in and among us. And that is examples in and among us, of waiting on the Lord. And waiting on the Lord is is not like showing up at the Department of Motor Vehicles to get your license renewed and realize it's Columbus or Indigenous Day or who knows what else, and it's closed, and you got to wait another day. It's not showing up someplace at some county office and having to sit in line for a long time and just kind of say, well, I'll sit here and I'll stimulate my brain on my phone at about on the EEG, about two blips go across in 45 minutes of brain activity. 
Waiting on the Lord is work. Waiting on the Lord takes effort. Waiting on the Lord is something in which David had gotten accustomed to doing. He did it so many times, we won't rehearse them all, but it would be just an exercise, an example, an encouragement to you. If you just read over his life and just found the times when he said, Lord, should I? Question mark. Lord, is this the time I'm to do this? If not, I will wait. He said that repeatedly as it considered battles or choices he made. He did that in the beginning of chapter 2 when he got news that Saul had died. The rest of us would have said, the path is clear. The road is wide to the throne. I would have just started walking north from our, our wilderness hut way down in the southern part of Israel if we were the ones annoyed and just said, Lord, I'm going to start walking. I know, I know when I get there, the throne will be ready for me. And you know what this waiting on the Lord kind of man did? He said, Lord, chapter 2, verse 1, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? Do you, do you want me just to stay put a little longer? I've kind of gotten good at it. Or should I at least go up to one of the cities in Judah, the very southern part, take a little foray towards what I think you're intending to accomplish? It would be another seven years and three chapters in our writings before they would come to him to that southern city of Hebron where the Lord said, yes, go up. So he went up and that was home base for another seven years. Now we're going to see the momentum pick up when in a few verses he, he takes Jerusalem that had yet to be taken. He repels the Philistines and begins to already advance Israelite territory. But I don't want to leave quite yet this thought of waiting on the Lord. There's many verses that we could look at, but I just want to remind you of two. One written by David and one written by Isaiah. In fact, the one that is written by David, Psalm 27.4, that begins, Wait for the Lord. This morning I thought, I just want to take time before I review my notes one more time. And I... Mistakenly, instead of turning to Psalm 27.4, I turned to Psalm 37. And it wasn't until I read that whole psalm just to enjoy a little time before the Lord, before sermon prep reminders got on my, my agenda and getting here, I got to the end and I thought, he says a lot of the stuff I was looking for, but I don't think this is the, the chapter I was looking for. And sure enough, chapter 37, Psalm 37, just like this Psalm 27, has themes of waiting. Themes of holding on to the promises of God. Themes of, of reminding oneself of the greatness of God. But Psalm 27, 4 is what I'd like you to hear. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. That was David writing. Listen to what Isaiah says. You've heard these words before, I bet. So Isaiah 40, verse 31. Those who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be faint. They shall walk and not be weary. Do you sense waiting is a passive activity? Do you sense waiting is just kind of turning the brain, the heart, the emotions... Closing the schedule book, turning off the phone, nothing to put on the agenda. Is it that kind of waiting that we see in these verses? Waiting is a spiritual activity. 
It's a spiritual work. David reminds us that waiting takes strength and takes courage. He says it right there. Let your heart take courage. Be strong. So waiting takes those things. It's a spiritual work, whether it's mustering up those things by relying on God's promises, reviewing how he's served you in the past, being encouraged by a friend in Christ. But then look at what Isaiah says. Because David's made the point, you need strength and courage to wait. This is an activity. This is a spiritual work, Isaiah says. And even in the waiting, you'll get stronger. Wait on the Lord and you will renew your strength. You won't use up your strength. You'll renew your strength. Wait on the Lord and you'll be ready to run after that time of waiting. Most of the time you think of just laying around and getting lazy and you picture yourself like an astronaut that's been in space and, and, and things have grown weak. Not what Isaiah says. Waiting will produce an ability to rise up like an eagle. It'll produce an ability when God says, go to run, to walk and not be weary. David wrote, you need strength and courage to wait on God. And Isaiah wrote, waiting on the Lord gives strength and courage. But let's move on and see, having seen how David arrived at the throne in large part by the spiritual activity of waiting, well, we see what David did as this chapter goes on. Because we need to know, like David, I think that's a key point in the next part, that God is behind our successes and our blessings. The key verse might be in chapter 5, verse 12. David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And to know that God was behind your success is not a relinquishment of joy. It is an invitation to such freedom. It's, a, it's, it's an invitation for the freedom the, that sees that God has done it and not us. There's such freedom when you recognize that truth. Now, believe it or not, I've learned some great spiritual lessons from atheists. It might seem funny to say that, but it is absolutely true. I've learned some lessons from atheists. I learned a lesson from a man, wrote an article, 2007. Name, his name is James Watson. He wrote an article saying that had his name and the title, What I've Learned. That might not be impressive, but he was 13 at the time, but he was on the cusp of his 80th birthday when he wrote it. He's still alive, I just checked. He's 94 years old. So he's turning 80 years old, and he reflects as an atheist, a committed atheist, on what I've learned in this life. He's had some time to think about it. And of the facts that he listed of what he'd learned, none jumped out to me more than this. I've seen no evidence of God. So I'm not going to think about one. I've seen no evidence for God. Makes me wonder in 80 years. Has, has he ever looked up at the stars and just wondered, is there a God behind that? Has he ever, whether he knows much about medicine or not, given thought to the human brain? Fascinating. His brain at age 79 was still working and still functioning in a way that he could process 
80 years and put it on paper. Has he ever thought about that? Still saying he hasn't seen a God. What about DNA? Well, what about this DNA that's in part, that is in every one of our cells? You've heard some of those amazing facts about DNA that codes us who we are. That, that in every chromosome, and you've got 46 in all several trillion cells in your body, in every chromosome there's somewhere between 50 and 250 million base pairs that make up every single chromosome. That if, if we somehow began to tinker with your cells, unpack the nucleus, grab the DNA, began to stretch it out, and we stretched out all the DNA in your whole body, It'd go from here to the sun and back 600 times. Look at the diversity in this room. Differences in heights, the color of our skin, just our interests, all kinds of things about us. And yet it's only 0.1%. That's one out of every thousand portions of our DNA that makes us different. 99.9% of your DNA and my DNA is the same, according to the experts. And here's a fun fact. You and I, our DNA has in, in common, on average, 40 to 50% of our DNA in common with a cabbage. <laughs> and some of you overachievers are a little higher. What if this fellow James Watson could have sat down with those guys in the early 50s that first in a lab in Cambridge University were putting together the structure of this complex DNA and how it was put together and packed within the nucleus, 10 years later winning the Nobel Peace Prize? What if James Watson could have just talked with one of those guys? James Watson was one of those guys of Watson and Crick that in 1953 first came up with the double helix of the DNA and was an, has been an expert for literally 69 years in the complexity of DNA and says to you and me, I've seen no evidence for a God. Our challenge is not to follow in those footsteps, but to say you can commit yourself to looking at your world and looking at your life. God allows the freedom to do this through a lens that God doesn't exist and certainly didn't have anything to do with it. Or, like David and I know those in this room, look through that same lens of life same lens of the relationships in life, same lens of your health and every aspect of your life, and say the opposite. God did it all. God was there through it all. God was behind all of it all. He was over all of it. He was underneath all of it. And I believe that's what David felt when he got to the throne and in verse 12 could say, David knew. Not intellectually, but at the depths of his heart. David knew that God had established him king over Israel. 
He conquered Jerusalem in a few verses. Jerusalem had been a stronghold. Believe it or not, you know, 400 years before, almost 400 years before, Joshua had entered into the promised land, leading the Israelites. And Israel had land below it. That's where David and Judah had been. Bethlehem, just seven miles from Jerusalem. And the northern kingdoms all to the north and to the sides. But Jerusalem had still been a stronghold. And, and so they, they were so confident, you read about it in chapter 5 here, around verses 5 and 6. They look, peer over the wall and say, David, you can't get in here. These Jebusites saying this to him. Even our blind and lame could fight you off. That's what they say. And so David says to his men, we'll approach it up through the water shaft. And sure enough, the, the shaft of water that went to the Gihon Spring outside of the walls of Jerusalem, they enter in there. And David defeats them. And I love the fact that in verse 10 it says, And David became greater and greater because he was a great military strategist. And no one else had ever thought about going up the water tunnel before. No. David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And when he goes after the Philistines, it, you see down in verse 17, the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, and they went up to search for David. So David didn't enter into his first public office and go searching for a, a fight with the Philistines. But they came up after him, and David, as, as a man of God who had waited so long to become king, continues to be one that waits on God's direction. So he says, shall I go up? He's asked it so many times, but he asks it now that he's in a higher role. And God is just as much on his heart when it comes to direction. Shall I go up, he says in verse 19. David wasn't questioning, can you do this, Lord? Are you able to pull this one off? Quite a few of them out there. Now, David was the one that, Left the, left the ill-fitting armor behind and ran across the field with just a few stones against Goliath and took him down. David's confidence was not what was lacking. David just wanted to be one that made sure that on God's timing and in God's ways, he would take each and every step. And he was able to say in verse 20, it's worth looking down at verse 20 just to see this. David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And the reason he called it this name, Baal-perazim, he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Baal was a word in general for just saying Lord, and Perazim was bursting forth. So even though David was very much on the battlefield, even though David had planned the strategy to come up that water tunnel just a short time before, he knew that God was the one breaking forth. God was the one doing the work. But chapter 6 moves from David in a posture of waiting on the Lord and then beginning to advance and be in obedience to the Lord, not delaying on the Lord's invitation to take Jerusalem or to fight the Philistines. We see in chapter 6, David moving from being afraid of the Lord to being one who is celebrating before the Lord. It has everything to do with the ark. The ark for us is, is something we sadly get more informed by 
movies by like Raiders of the Lost Ark than we do about just the scriptures. But it was something that for them was more than just a box. It was a box indeed that the Lord had given explicit instructions back in the first five books as to how to build it. It it was a box that would move when they moved in the wilderness with explicit instructions as to how they moved that Ark of the Covenant. There was instructions about how it would be inladen with gold. There was instructions about who could enter in and be near that box once a year. There was instructions in all aspects of it because God said, this is a place that between the two cherubim, the, 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 the figures, these heavenly figures that were in gold that, that God had placed on the box, craftsmen built it and they were placed on the ark, that, that God said, my presence will dwell there. So in some significant way, different than anything on this stage or any stage in any church, God said, my presence very specifically will be between the cherubim. David was a conquering man, but he needed to be conquered in one specific way in this chapter. He needed to be conquered because he was not aware enough of God's holiness. He needed to have that conquered by God himself. R.C. Sproul says this about holiness, about God's holiness. God is above and beyond us. He's higher than the world. He has absolute power over the world. The world has no power over him. There is an infinite distance that separates God from every other creature. Now, when David sets out to move this ark, because keep in mind, he's just captured and taken over Jerusalem, begun to build it, and, and is looking to be able to bring the ark into Jerusalem for, a, for a, really a, a resting place after it had been moved around for several hundred years. So David goes to do that. And, and truthfully, there is much that we can admire. And, and the scholars back that up. Let, let me read it to you. But appreciate the good things that are happening as to David's care in trying to bring this ark about eight or nine miles from where it was outside of Jerusalem in up to Jerusalem. Chapter 6, verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. The cherubim are the, those gold figures on the ark reminding us through the biblical writer of God's presence. The importance of that. Let me continue. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart. Jumping down to verse 5. David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines, castanets and cymbals. David was taking time. His his own time. He was taking the time of 30,000 others and and. I'm sure others followed in. You know, when something exciting's happened, people just start, to start wandering in there. What an example. I say this seriously. What an example in so many ways of honoring the Lord. But David was not playing, paying attention to the clear instructions back in Numbers. 
There's, there's 11 verses back in Numbers chapter 4. Let me read a little bit. You don't need to turn there, but I'm reading verbatim from Numbers 4. First of all, verse 5. And this has to do with moving the Ark of the Covenant. When the camp is, set, is to set out, meaning when it's time to move camp, when you're in the wilderness, this is how you move the Ark. When the camp is to set out, Aaron and his son shall go in, take down the veil of the screen, and cover the ark of the testimony with it. They shall put on it a covering of goatskin, meaning onto the ark. Spread on the top of that a cloth of blue. And they shall put in its poles. This ark, from the beginning, God had mandated that there would be these, these circular rings that would be on each of the four corners of the ark. So that then, when it came time to move it, these long poles could be slid between into these rings, and you could hold the ark, a man on each corner, and have a little distance between you and the ark, and this goatskin, and this blue covering over it. And then down to verse 15, tells who's supposed to carry it. The sons of Kohath, just in case you haven't done a word study on Kohath in the last 72 hours. Kohath was one of the Levite tribes, but with sub-tribes. So this is within the Levites. This is a particular group, a particular family group within the Levites. God prescribed that they would be the ones when it came time to move it. It would need, it would need to be, those would be the movers. The sons of Kohath shall come to carry these poles, carry the ark with these poles, but they must not touch the holy things lest they die. These are the things of the tent of meeting that the sons of Kohath are to carry. I appreciate what Richard Phillips says as he looked at this, a a pastor today, commentator on this. He says, in our judgment, he's talking about me and you and himself, David's mistake seems rather minor indiscretion. I mean, easily set aside, he says, given all the good things happening that day. His devotion to the worship of the Lord was impressive that day. But we think this way because we forget how holy God is. We think this way because we forget how holy God is. And so what happens, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 6 to 10. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it as the oxen had stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. He died there beside the ark of the Lord. And David was angry. Because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. Breaking out against Uzzah. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. R.C. Sproul, he wrote a whole book called The Holiness of God read you his statement about the holiness of God, but he admits what he would have felt that day. He says, I think in my, we think that Uzzah should have heard a voice from God saying, 
Thank you, Uzzah. Thanks for stabilizing the ark. Wouldn't have wanted to fall into the mud, to, to break apart. I have read this and thought, why wasn't there a little congratulations for his attentiveness? But that's not the issue. The issue is they were deviating from God's clear instruction. They deviated. Who cares if the cart was just fresh off of the assembly line? A new cart, we read, they carried. They were not carrying it the right way. It should have been carried with poles, so no man was in danger of stumbling and even touching the ark. been more stable. It wasn't that we can tell any of the Kohathites, as God had instruction, instructed to be the ones carrying it. And clearly, there was not a mindset in Uzzah's mindset or those around that they needed to make sure they didn't touch this holiest of objects, as God had said, lest they die. And it's only after David hears down a few verses later that after three months, it was told to David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom, where the ark was now parked. The Lord has blessed this household because of the ark of God, that David would go down. Far more sensitive, far more instructed in his soul about the holiness of God and realize, I need the presence of God. I I need this blessing and, and I have removed myself for fear of the holiness of God. I have removed myself from some of the blessing because I've allowed the holiness of God to not instruct me as to how to draw close, but cause me to not want to draw close. C.S. Lewis, as he often did so well, gave an illustration of what that's like in the silver chair. When a young girl named Jill found herself very thirsty, and, and she was thirsty and she could hear in the distance as her thirst grew strong, she could hear in the distance a bubbling brook. She couldn't see it because of the trees, because of, of the, the, the bushes in front, but pushing her way through, she finally gets to a place where she can see the stream in the distance. She begins to think, there is where I can have my thirst quenched. But no sooner does she see the stream than she realizes that between her and the stream, right on the bank of the stream, this side of the brook to her is Aslan, the great lion that symbolized God himself in the person of Christ. And she's frozen and looks at the stream and looks at Aslan, this great lion, this formidable figure. And she says, nothing. But Aslan says, if you're thirsty, come and drink. He says nothing, still fearful. Aslan says again, if you are thirsty, come and drink. She still stammers. And afraid of his holiness, she says, I dare not come and drink. He says, then you will die. She says, I suppose I must go look for another stream. And Aslan says, There is no other stream. How great are the words that Tozer wrote some 60, 70 years ago. The great saints have had thirsting hearts. And so may we be like David, 
that the thirst sometimes is played out in our lives by waiting patiently on the Lord. Thirsting for Him, thirsting for His promises, His reassurances, thirsting for greater trust, thirsting for renewed and growing strength, even as we wait like David did. And some of that thirsting, like David realized, is pursuing the invitation to draw closer. Understanding and growing in an understanding of God's unbelievable otherness, his holiness. And yet not refusing the invitation, but realizing that he alone is the only stream. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for David, his example, but above all, the God that he served. The invitations that come from that God to know him, to seek him in Christ at the cross. Father, remind us that there is no other stream. Remind us, even those of us that know we are in Christ, but find ourselves in a time of retreating from his presence, that we will find still no other stream. Lord, we thank you and we ask your blessing for Christ's sake on the week ahead in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.